Diana, and I love printing and design, typography and branding, books and publishing. I've traveled the world learning about trends to share with my students and with my readers. But I haven't forgotten where I started, writing papers about paper on paper. And now I've created a podcast to share what I know with you. So let's talk paper scissors. Welcome back to the second episode in the six-part magazine series. Here, you'll meet James Hughes, CEO of FIP, a global magazine industry organization. Here's how FIP describes itself. Originally formed by a consortium of magazine publishers to enable them to share ideas, the organization has grown almost 100 years to include media owners and content creators from across the world. In this episode, you'll learn how James went from working in banking to making magazines, eventually running the BBC's international magazine business. James shares macro trends in magazines internationally, including shifting trends that every industry is facing, like sustainability, accessibility, privacy concerns, as well as trends specific to the magazine industry, like who's going to pay for content, as well as identity, what is a magazine these days anyway? And what do you do when you can literally do everything? James explains the way that traditional magazine advertising is shifting alongside digital media and the opportunities within this new landscape, including the evolving nature of the core of the magazine business from advertising to the consumer. James describes how magazine industry trends mirror that of the music industry and the ways in which we may be able to see our future in the music industry's present. Finally, James shares his thoughts on the future of AI in the media industry and why making magazines is still the greatest job in the world. James's visuals he discussed in the episode can be found within the show notes at talkpaperscissors.info. This episode is part of a guest lecture series in GCM 720, Magazine Production and Publishing in the Creative School at TMU, and co-hosted by student Samantha Benezra. Let's listen in. So joining us is James Hughes, who is the CEO of FIP. And I'll let him introduce a little bit more uh, kind of about himself and give you that insider info, but just know that he's been working with FIP, been involved with FIP as an organization since 2004, when he was working in the international publishing industry for BBC Worldwide. So thank you so much, James, for taking the time. We know you're in Portugal. Uh, <laughs> it's nighttime there, and we really appreciate you being here with us. My pleasure. Nice to, nice to be here. Thank you very much for the invite. So maybe the best place to start is just asking you what your professional background in magazines is and kind of what drew you to working with FIP. Sure. Well, um, I always say that my background in magazines is not necessarily a good model for how people should start out in the industry because I sort of fell into it by accident, which is not uh, something that you recommend when you're talking about um, uh, career paths, uh, especially not in today's world. But I, I originally was working for a bank um, I worked for Barclays Bank for four years, 
And then uh, in 2001, I decided that uh, working for a bank was terribly boring and, and tedious, and it wasn't something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I decided to switch careers and switch professions. And I ended up getting a job at the BBC working in their corporate strategy department, helping them to do planning and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, to cut a long story short, um, one of the great things about working in a big organization is that very often you're given opportunities to do projects that are outside of your your core. And, you know, that old um, saying that people tell you, that old piece of advice that people give you when you start uh, work, always volunteer for everything is absolutely true. Uh, so by volunteering for things, I got exposed to more and more different types of work. And a lot of that was in the magazine field. Uh, I was working with um, uh, the list, TV listings magazine. It's the very early days of electronic program guides on, on television screens, doing projects around that. Uh, and then I was involved in launching a food magazine and various other new product development initiatives and working in the marketing department, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, in 2004, they came to me and said, James, we've got this problem. We've got a big brand, a big automotive brand uh, called Top Gear, which is you know very popular on TV and a very big magazine. And we have these guys who are doing it in the Middle East. And we have another person who wants to do it in Russia and somebody who wants to do it in Holland. And we don't know what to do. Can you Can you look at this project for us? So I went away and wrote a big strategy and uh, told them what I thought we should do. And of course, the, the strategy turned out to be completely incorrect because by the time we got the business going, the reality of, you know, what's that great saying? No plan survives contact with the enemy. Uh, as soon as you um, as soon as you get started with business, things happen in an organic way. And I was asked to, to run the business. So for, for a number of years, I ran the BBC's international magazine business, helping to expand their portfolio of franchised uh, printed magazines as it was in those days around the world. And we eventually took that to something like 50 countries uh, in a very short space of time. Um, and during that time, I got involved with this organization called FIP, which was uh, in those days very useful for us to meet prospective partners and, and to learn more about the international publishing community. Um, so I'd always been a supporter of it and been a, it, mainly because it had been useful for my business. Um, and I remembered it throughout the course of my the rest of my career. I then moved to the Middle East and we, we sold the magazine business to a private equity company in 2011. Uh, and in 2012, the end of 2012, I moved to the Middle East and worked in Dubai for five years, working for a newspaper, running their magazine business, helping them to transform that into a digital uh, business. Um, and then when that came to an end and I decided uh, to have my own business for a while, I got approached by the, the people at FIP. Uh, to say, would you like to come back and run the organization because the current chief exec is, is retiring? Uh, and I had obviously very good fond memories of the organization from having worked with it for such a long time. But I also recognized that it was a, a great opportunity to transform the business because the nature of international publishing has changed so dramatically in that period, in the intervening period. Obviously, the shift away from print towards digital, but also the nature of those international business models. So it became a very interesting challenge. Um, and, and I'm glad I did it. I've been there five and a half years now, and it's a an organization dedicated to uh, the publishing industry. We'll come on to what that means in a minute, but it's um, uh, a great way for us to share knowledge. We're, we're not for profit, so we don't do it for, our, for ourselves. We do it for the good of the industry, and we're here to represent the industry. And we really do four or five very important things, sharing knowledge, uh, helping our industry to network with one another, and helping with training and getting people trained up in new skills, and we do consultancy work to help people solve business problems, and we do advocacy work around uh, topics that are important to the industry, like sustainability and and DNI uh, and uh, and copyright and piracy and stuff like that. 
So much helpful information comes by way of your emails and uh, and your organization's just presence online and and the even the printed publications. There was a trend report that when you, yeah. we met in September that you you gave me and yeah, just like so so much good information comes by way of thank FIP. You, yeah. So thank you for continuing to to lead that that path because well, I think and it's we should such... say as well that all all of your students, all of the people on this call. You are all members of FIP now. We give a membership free to academic institutions. So you should be able to go to FIP.com and download those reports and you'll get a copy of the a digital copy of the, the next trends report when it comes out in June. Um, yeah, I mean, it's part of the mission is to help is to help develop those kind of materials that are useful for the industry to learn more about itself and identify best practice. So with all of your vast experience falling into magazines and then really really diving deep and kind of going far and wide with the international reach that you did what are some of the major or kind of macro trends that the magazine world is experiencing right now whether in magazine journalism or in magazine production or both like what what's happening big picture yeah well i would split that into two camps i mean there is of course the macro trends that affect every business which are being experienced by the magazine industry uh, itself. And those are things like sustainability. We have to prove that we understand the footprint of our businesses and that we're working to reduce them like diversity and inclusion. We need to be showing that our content and our journalists and our businesses reflect the communities in which we work uh, and that we're dedicated to improving accessibility to our, to our content and to our industry. Uh, we need to make sure that we're protecting the rights of our industry when it comes to the, to, the, to the technology giants, all that kind of stuff. That's all macro stuff that pretty much every business is facing. Um, the macro stuff that's unique to, to our business, I think the biggest one is identity. Um, and let me just explain what I mean by that. It was very simple 20 years ago when I first started in this industry, 25 years ago, to... to say what we did we were the magazine industry everybody knew what a magazine was you could pick it up you could flick through it and you could understand what it was now of course with the uh, explosion of opportunity that there is in terms of content and in terms of delivery platforms so you think about the different types of content that you can use that you can produce you in, in addition to the traditional words and pictures you can now have audio and video and infographics and uh, you can do live experiences all this kind of stuff virtual experiences you can also distribute those across many more platforms than was the case before. This explosion of opportunity is great because it democratizes the media, it enables people who weren't previously able to be content creators to create content and distribute it and make a living from that. Um, but it also provides an enormous amount of complexity. And within that complexity comes the need to prioritize. So where am I going with this? The, the problem that magazine media companies have and that every company has in our space at the moment is that you can do everything. So when you can do everything, what are you? Uh, if I go around the table of the board of directors who now represent FIP from the industry, uh, 30 of them, and ask each of them what their company does, I would get 30 different answers. Uh, and the one thing that would be missing is the word magazines. None of them want to be described as magazine companies. So the question I pose to them and I pose to you to consider as, as you think about your own studies, and this applies whether you're a journalist or on the business side, is what does it mean when an industry is not capable of self-identifying, collectively self-identifying? Uh, it causes a big problem. We've managed to narrow that down a little bit and say that we represent companies that produce consumer lifestyle and consumer special interest content, that we also represent companies that, that, that uh, produce news content or news media companies, um, uh, B2B companies and, and independent sector, but it doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same catchy way as the magazine industry did. 
Um, so I think that's the biggest macro issue is where are we going as an industry? Are we going to just diverge? Are we all going to be different things? Or is there a core uh, set of um, content and platforms that we're going to focus on, that we're all going to focus on, that's going to unify us? And we're not quite there yet. When you dig into that a bit deeper, I think the secondary major issue, and I won't dwell on the thousands of sub-issues, but I think the second major issue is who is going to pay for journalism? Because we can all be wonderful, create podcasts and video, and I'm sure you're doing all those wonderful things as you quite rightly should. Everybody should be a multi-platform journalist and our businesses should be multi-platform. If we can't figure out a way to get people to pay for that, then this is all pointless. Now, in the old days, the old days, and they were not the good old days, they were just the old days, advertising paid for all of this. Um, but the problem with advertising is that it's an indirect relationship with the consumer. You don't really know what the consumer wants. You only know what an advertiser wants. The great thing about digital media is it gives us the opportunity to understand directly what the consumer wants, and we have to just grasp the other side of that rose, the other side of that nettle, whichever way you want to call it, which is to monetize the consumer directly in knowing what they want. The reason that a business like Netflix has been so successful in acquiring its audience so quickly, and Disney Plus the same, is because they have that fantastic relationship. They, have, they own the data, they produce the content themselves, they monetize that directly through a subscription, and they can join those two halves together. Then when you add an ad layer onto it, as Netflix have done, it's a complementary service. It's not the core of the business. And, and if I could sum up our issue as an industry is that we're still struggling with moving from a position where the core of our business was advertising to the core of our business being the consumer. It's a very hard shift. And hey, it's 100 years, right? We did it for 100 years. When you change a habit after 100 years, it takes time. That's wonderful. And pulling on the point of recent trends and platforms, do you think that magazine companies will take all or a majority of their content exclusively to a digital platform? And if so, what would that platform look like? Would it be an app or a website, maybe a publishing host? I, I mean, it's a fantastic question, Samantha. And I think the, the answer is if, if we knew that, we'd all be rich. Uh, so I think that's the I think you've hit the nail on the head. So that's the question that everybody is still working through. What is the what is the correct set of content or the subset of content that we put online? Uh, bearing in mind, not not I don't describe it that way because it makes it sound like online's an afterthought. For all media companies, online is the primary distribution channel now. Whether that's through all of the method, well, through all of the methods that you mentioned. So we think digital first. Uh, but there is nevertheless within that subtleties around the different distribution methodologies or methods that we can use and therefore subtleties around the type of content that go on each of those platforms. And I think that's what we're still working through. If you take a very narrow subset of that and imagine a single article, a piece of text and a photograph, what is the most effective way to distribute that article? Bearing in mind, there are probably 20 or 30 ways that you can do that. You could put it on a printed page. You could post it on Twitter, you could put it on Apple News Plus, you could put it on Zinio or Press Reader, you could put it on your own website, your own um, your own digital app, digital app, I sound ancient, your own app, your own uh, TikTok channel, whatever it might be. The, there is not yet a clear enough understanding of the correlation between distribution and monetization, except that there does seem to be an inverse relationship between the two. The broader the distribution, the harder it is to monetize it because those broad distribution platforms are owned by very large gatekeepers who want to do the monetization themselves 
and only give you a tiny portion of it. So that's the wrestling that we've had to go through in the last 20 years, and they're still going through at the moment. And if I can just, uh, super interesting, really interesting. We just got off the off the call, as I mentioned, with Nicola Hamilton, who owns uh, Toronto's now, I think, only or one of the only independent magazine shops. And her yeah. her whole business model and her whole ethos is focused around print. And so it's it's interesting that just that the word that uh, kind of um, caught me with what with what you just said was that we think digital platform first, but I don't know. Is that is I mean maybe oh. that's the case for for big big publishers, but what about the little niche uh, independent magazines? Well, there, there there is there is absolutely a place for that, and actually the niche independent sector is growing very quickly and is at the forefront of the print transformation. Um, I, you know, the influence of my members rubs off on me. Whenever I start to talk about print, I always sort of go, well, I shouldn't talk about it because they'll think I'm old fashioned. I mean, I love print. I love magazines. I've actually got magazines in the room with me here now and I'll go out and buy some more tomorrow. And actually the people that I work with on the courses uh, like you guys are doing also love magazines. That's why you do these courses in the first place. Uh, it's only the suits in the media companies that think that it affects the share price so they don't like talking about it. Um, I'm gonna, I wasn't going to show you any slides, but I will show you one slide that I had ready because I think it's crucial for this 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 element of the discussion. What the um, hopefully you can all see that. Can you see that the music industry slide? Yeah. So this is this I think is the is the killer slide. This slide deck has got like sixty slides in it, but this is probably the most important one, and it's a slide about the music industry. So the music industry. If you look at this period, this is exactly the same period of transformation and turmoil that print has gone through. So 20-year period from 1999. And so 99, 2000 was the peak of the print industry. It was also the peak of the physical music, recorded music industry, in, the, in this case, CDs. So if you look at what's happened in the music industry, uh, the red bar, which is physical stuff, has, has diminished rapidly and has been replaced by a blue bar. And the blue bar is streaming. It's basically Spotify and Amazon Music and, and uh, Apple Music, and whatever they call that thing, and, and YouTube and all those kind of things. And then there's some, some stuff at the top. Don't worry about that. But two things to take away from this. The first one is that mu the music industry completed its transformation in 2021, 20 years after it started. In other words, in 2021, the music industry was bigger for the first time than it was when that transformation started in the year 2000, 2000. Secondly, that they have now embraced a fundamental change in the philosophy of that industry, which is that they don't believe anymore that consumers need to own music. They can rent music. So the music industry for decades was about consumers owning music physically. The blue bar is streaming. Streaming is renting music. Spotify is just a rental service, just an on-demand rental service. So they've transitioned philosophically to that and embraced it and embraced losing direct control of the relationship with the consumer, which they never got anyway. But the third thing is that they found a way to make the legacy business work. Look at the red bar in 2021. It grew. What was that? Put, put your hand up if you know what that is, metaphorical hand up. Diana, Samantha, do you know what that was? LPs? Or, or sorry, vinyl. Uh, vinyl. It's vinyl. Sorry. Yeah, yes, it's vinyl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what they basically did was they went, hmm, what's the cool, high production value format that people still like that we can invest in? It's vinyl. 
Now, I don't know if I don't know if you buy vinyl, any of you, but go and look at the price of new vinyl. A new vinyl, I've just started buying vinyl myself, right? A new vinyl record in the UK is 20 to 25 pounds. I mean, that's an enormous amount of money for something that has 40 minutes of music on it. Okay. So what's the lesson from this? The lesson from this is music industry has embraced a shift in its fundamental business model, which we have yet to do. And they have found a way to make their legacy business, vinyl is their print, work by turning it into a luxury product. Now, to, to answer your point, Diana, that uh, C, somebody, Haley says CDs aren't vintage yet. CDs, are, CDs were, a, were a, a blip. Nobody's ever going to collect CDs. If you've got CDs, throw them away. Okay, they, they, not even the music industry likes CDs. I have CDs. I've got my Aqua CDs in, in the car that I listened to. Anyway, I'm dating okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> you need to you need to get rid of them. <laughs> CDs are, CDs degrade as well, right? That's the difference between CDs and vinyl. Vinyl doesn't degrade because it's made of horrible non-biodegradable plastic. It that, that stuff lives forever. CDs, the CD itself lives forever, but the music degrades. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We're getting we're getting sidetracked. The um the point is that the print industry has the opportunity to become like vinyl but only if it embraces the idea that print is a luxury product. And when I say luxury, I don't mean luxury in the sense that the content is about luxury. I mean that the product itself should be an experience. It should be, you know, if you think about what the characteristics of a luxury product are, it has rarity or scarcity uh, in the sense that it doesn't come out all the time. So maybe not a monthly, maybe six times a year or four times a year or twice a year, whatever. Uh, it's expensive. So the days of magazines costing 99 cents or five bucks are gone. A magazine should cost... 15, 20, 25 bucks. Uh, it should have high production values. So don't print it on toilet paper, print it on nice paper and have lots of pages in it, lots of content. Uh, and it should linger. You know, it should be something that people want. It, it should want to collect. Um, so make it a, a thing of beauty, you know. Uh, and I think that's the moment we're coming to with print. And in parallel with that, we're wrestling with, well, what's our streaming moment? You know, we haven't quite worked that out yet because we still want to own the relationship with the consumer. And that might be the big philosophical hump we can't get over. Perhaps we shouldn't own the relationship with the consumer. Who knows? That's so fascinating, especially with the vinyl and CDs and all. And uh, now that we're talking about the internet and streaming and everything, what role do you believe that AI will play in the future of magazine and the media industries? Yeah. Uh, if you'd asked me that question three months ago, I'd have said none. Um, because it was still a, a very kind of emerging, emergent technology that didn't have any real-world use case. I think the we've just published a report on AI, which was eye-opening. Um, it's on the website if you want to go and download it. Um, I think, how could I summarize it? I think AI will take away the routine, the boring routine stuff. So writing a report about a traffic collision or a, um, I don't know, what would be an example? Um, in food, if there's a new restaurant, you know, and, and uh, you could put in a few sentences about what you thought, and then the AI can write the rest of the report. So a lot of that drudgery, I think, will go away. It will certainly be taking away a lot of jobs in marketing, writing marketing copy and all that kind of stuff. Um, will it take away the fundamentals of journalism? No, it won't. Because an AI, there's a great book you should read, and amongst all the hype, read a book called The AI Delusion. It's written by a mathematician. Uh, and he basically says, just remember that AIs don't think. So they, the computers cannot think. Even the best, best computer you could ever think of cannot think. All it can do is calculate quicker and better than the, than, than the previous computer. 
And so AIs are just running algorithms. They're not true intelligence. They are just very, very good at passing and analyzing information and spitting out a response. So as long as you keep that in mind, then they're not going to suddenly start creating the flights of fancy, the leap uh, from A to B that a journalist or a writer makes, you know, the unexpected simile or the unexpected comparison that 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 only a, only a writer has, you know, only a writer can do that. So they're not, they won't have inspiration, I think is the key. But a lot of the drudgery will disappear. Is that good for humans? Yeah, probably. You know, it's probably good for humans. Who wants to do boring work? You know, if it means we can all do more interesting work, that's probably a good thing. AI is fascinating and terrifying to me. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, we're where I spend the majority of my time in the world of education. I mean, it's shifting things there so quickly in terms of the way we think about assessment, <clears throat> the way we think about how to teach students, how to ethically and kind of critically assess these tools that they are are inevitably going to be interfacing with in industry, whether it's uh, directly or indirectly. So yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing, and and I'm it it has changed so quickly. I uh, I, I am really I, I curious always, to see I where mean, it I goes. Always, I would always ask yourself the question, um, Diana, when it's doing that, is it taking something away that was boring anyway? You mm. know. If it's taking something away that's boring anyway, then that's probably quite a good thing. If it's a friend of mine got it, a friend of mine works in a pharmaceutical company that does uh, genome analysis and all that kind of stuff, and he got it to write the manual for their for their piece of software, you know, the training manual, which is the most boring thing on the planet, writing training manuals. So he's like, great, I don't have to write it, fantastic. So I think it's a, uh, I think in that sense, it's a, it's a, a real positive. Um, uh, as long as you remember that, what I said earlier, it can't think. So it can't take away the bit that humans do, which is right. thinking. And Absolutely. the problem is that for too long, we've had too many humans doing jobs that didn't need thinking. Yeah. Yep. Creativity is the future. Yeah. <laughs> good, which is a good thing because you're all on a journalism course. So fantastic. <laughs> which speaking of this class, this call and this class is personally opened my eyes and I'm sure many other students in the class to the magazine industry. And I'm much more fascinated about it than I was prior to taking this course. So I want to ask you, do you have any advice for us in this class who may wish to become members of the magazine industry now that they're more interested? Uh, I think I would say two things. Firstly, follow your passion. So um, when you're writing, you're all, you know, you're all training journalists, you're all wanting to get into the, into the, into the writing space. If you're writing, you will write better about things you're passionate about. Um, and you'll be more interested in that subject and therefore be able to read around it and get more and get more insight into it and therefore become an expert. So, so follow your passion. Absolutely. And by the way, you'll be surprised how many people will also be interested in your passion. Go to our friend, uh, is it Nicola, our friend Nicola's in, independent magazine store and look at some of the crossover magazines that exist, you know, the person who's launched a magazine that crosses over gardening and table tennis or whatever it is, and you think it can't possibly work. But of course it does work because there's plenty of people who, if you can think of it, then there's other people who are interested in it. So follow your passion. Uh, and secondly, um, just be aware that you're, you are in the greatest job in the world. And I mean that in a, in a strange way, in the sense that you will come to a point in your career where your friends 
who are doing other types of jobs, all they'll talk about is their impending retirement. And if you've done it right, you'll be going, why the hell do you want to retire? This job's great, you know, because this, I always say to people, especially people at university, most people would kill to be journalists and they would kill to work in the consumer media industry. Uh, it is great fun. You don't do it for the money, you do it for the love. But when you get to the end of your career, you'll be glad that you did it because trust me, four years working in a bank, you don't want to do that. Great advice. Great advice. And I couldn't agree more on both accounts. No, well, you can, everybody here, you can reach out to me if you have any follow-up questions or if you need help with any of your, your work or projects or whatever, you want some resources, just write to me. My email is very simple, james at fit.com. Um, we're here to help the industry and to help you. So feel free to, to make use of, of me and my time. Always, you're always welcome. Thank you so much, James. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you and pick your brain. And, and this has been really eye-opening for me. And uh, I, I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Thank you very much for, for, for inviting me. Enjoy your dinner. Thank you. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good one. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Have a good rest of the day. 